when we originally started this uh, idea about having a, a webinar series for residential colleges, uh, there was a couple of things we were looking at. And, and first is sort of looking at the very unique environment uh, that is residential colleges. Um, you know, as, as Mandy would say, uh, it's, not quite, it's not quite a school, it's not quite a university. Uh, it has this very special relationship uh, with its students and has a very special relationship between uh, its, its own administration and how it runs and the relationships it has with, uh, with universities. Uh, and there's sometimes a tension there that has to be managed uh, in moving it forward. The subject today is, is uh, stewardship. And, and this one, I, I don't know that there's a more important subject to me, uh, or in fact, a more important subject in fundraising than stewardship. Um, I'm fortunate to have Kate Robertson join us uh, for this presentation. Uh, I've known Kate for a number of years, and, and when I was sort of about to tweet about this, I didn't know whether to call her uber brilliant, uber intelligent, uh, <laughs> but I just stuck with brilliant. Um, and Kate is the executive director of advancement at University of Tasmania. Um, and there's very few people I respect more than Kate in terms of uh, her capabilities, uh, skills, and just sheer uh, intelligence and in how she looks at things. So I'm, I'm really glad, Kate, that you could join us today. Uh, I'll know, I'll, I continue to learn from you and I'm, and I'm sure uh, our colleagues around this uh, this webinar today will continue to learn from you, thank uh, you as thank well. So thank you for making time. Uh, I'll go into the presentation. We've got some slides to take you through and Kate and I will uh, flip back and forth and then we'll come up at the end uh, uh, and uh, have and turn it over to Mandy to, uh, to close out the, the presentation uh, on a couple of points or a couple of slides. Um, I'm gonna try sharing now and so, uh, I'll apologize if I get this wrong. <laughs> He's practiced well. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, there you go. Right. So we've been doing this for months, but you know, still there's this trepidation, isn't there, when we get going on a presentation? <laughs> That's exactly it. So I'm. Uh, I know it well. Let's try this. Looking good, Nick. So far, so good. Perfect, Nick. And then into slideshow format. There you go. All right, we're good. Everyone can see that? It looks good to me. Okay, perfect. All right. So, again, so the topic today is uh, donor stewardship in conversation. You'll notice we have these uh, two 1.5 meters apart and, and socially distancing or physically distancing. Uh, but this particular topic, as I said, I think right now, and as Neil alluded to, during COVID-19, it's such an important element uh, in terms of how we actually engage our donors, how we retain our donors, uh, and how we actually build up those relationships. And I think this particular point about looking at stewardship for, for us in this context is even more relevant than, than it normally is. And, and as I said earlier, uh, to me, I don't know if there's a more important aspect of fundraising than donor stewardship. Um, so I think actually, uh, Nick, if I may, just before we, we start, I'm not sure if everyone's aware that we're actually recording um, this session. So just from a housekeeping point of view, uh, I think that's for the benefit of other people to be able to listen back in. So Nick and I are really happy to be able to share this more widely. And um, But just for other uh, people who are on the call, just to be mindful that the, the session is being recorded. But look, we'd like to uh, throw it out um, 
think one of the, the, the topics that um, really vexes a lot of people is how much time or percentage of your time do you spend on donor stewardship? Because um, as to Nick's point, there's, there's a point at which you think really you could spend all your time. But for those who work in residential colleges and probably a lot of the schools, it isn't your full time job. So I'd actually like just to get a, a, a little check in with um, some people on this call to say, what kind of time are you spending? We did have some people respond to the, um, the survey, but I would love to hear from people, what kind of time are you spending on donor stewardship? So if there's anyone there, particularly perhaps call out to the, uh, the residential colleges in the first instance to say, how much time are you allocating on stewardship at the moment? I'm, uh, I'm happy to, to jump in. Um, so at the moment, Ormond, I think it would best be described as a bit inconsistent. So um, our major donor um, director uh, does a huge amount of stewardship with uh, his pipeline and obviously major donors, but um, it doesn't filter down to uh, new donors we get. Um, so there's a bit of a disconnect between, you know, building that sort of a sort of pipeline between, you know, encouraging people to give again. Um, and I think um, it has been an issue and it is an issue at the college um, because we are seeing a uh, over the past five years, there has been a fairly big drop in the number of donors, about 20%. When, and when you don't have a massive amount of donors, that's a huge drop. And I think that's a, I think most of that is to do with a, with sort of a, a lack of stewardship, um, you know, to donors about what they've donated to and the impact of their gifts. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mandy um, has just put on um, onto the chat function that about 20% uh, of time is um, spent on stewardship in um in her college. So what about anybody else? Could I just make a, a comment? Um, I don't know about the rest of, of, of everybody's donor profile, and I think that's something important to think about. Um, we've actually got less individual donors and far more corporates and, um, and sort of sponsorship arrangements, um, which come with a, a predetermined set of agreements and KPIs that have to be met and reporting um, timelines, etc. So I'm actually finding that it's taking so much more of my time than it did maybe two years ago um, because um, and they, don't, they don't just want one, you know, sort of an annual report. It's now quarterly almost. So, you know, you, it's a big investment in terms of, of, your, of your time and resources in order, you know, you've got to weigh up is $20,000 and four reports a year and all the other stuff that goes on around donor stewardship possible to deliver. Um, so that's just a general comment. And I'd be interested to know what you think about that. Yeah, I think um, I think uh, looking at the responses that we had in ahead of this um, session and that have come in since, you know, it's very varied about what people spend on stewardship. And I think the key point here is is there is no right answer, um, other than to say that um, probably there's 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 another there's never too much time that you could spend on stewardship because in the end it is a um, a very valuable investment of your time. It's um, we'll come on to talk later about how it's um, more cost effective to keep the donors you've got than to get um, new donors. But it does have to be proportionate to your resources. And I'm very mindful of the people on this call in particular. The resources are pretty tight um, and you're very stretched. So um, I think, you know, we have to balance up the time spent on looking after the ones you've got with, with new initiatives. And in particular, as we go through this session, really thinking ahead of time about what is it you're going to be capable? What time are you going to have available? And if you need to think about that from the beginning, I think we'll come back to some of those themes as we go through the call, but I'm going to hand back to Nick at this point. Yeah, listen, I think it's a very good point, Mandy. And I, you know, one of the things that we sort of look at and why, why the amount of time I think matters is that when you sort of look at this, the latest studies have shown a couple of things. The first thing is the reasons why people stop giving 
the number one reason around the world is donor fatigue, stated donor fatigue. Um, that's not entirely surprising. In Australia, uh, according to the ACNC, we've got about 56,000 charities uh, and a 4% annual growth on that number. So uh, we've got a very busy market, a very saturated market. And at the college level, you've got competition from universities, you've got competition from schools that, that a student would have come from. Uh, so you've got increased competition in that, in that area. Uh, the latest stat from BlackBot Target Analytics there shows, you know, 67% of donors uh, give to six plus organizations. That number is not entirely different to uh, when I was at University of Sydney. So when we ran the program uh, at University of Sydney, we looked at our top 100 donors. Uh, our top 100 donors, 60 of them gave to six or more faculties or uh, areas within the institution. Um, some of them actually gave to colleges as well. So part of that six is, is to colleges. What that means for us is that if we're actually not looking after our donors well at a college level, then we've got the competition of, this, of the university looking after that gift and your other five areas that are looking after, after that donor uh, is, is gonna ramp up that competition, that internal competition. Same thing with schools. If schools are actually uh, on the giving set of a particular donor, you're faced with that competition from, from schools as well. So I think if you start to look at this, I think it's a, it creates a real pressure environment in, in terms of why stewardship is so, so important and why some time needs to be allocated to it. Uh, the Giving Australia Index in 2016 talked about why donors don't give. And this, uh, the results of that reflect a study that was done by my colleague in Canada, Guy Malabone, uh, and Tony Myers uh, on motivating the money givers. And the number one reason for why people give and why they don't give was an understanding of how the money is being used and where and where it's going. And the Australian, the Australian example for giving from giving Australia talked about donors stop giving because they don't know where the money's going to. And so from our standpoint, the accountability in that reporting is so incredibly important that if we're not doing it well, we're gonna face that increased competition. If you look at this particular slide, this comes from the uh, Association of Fundraising Professionals, uh, the effectiveness survey. And this is an interesting comparison between the private sector versus the nonprofit sector. First time retention of customers uh, for the profit sector is 94%. The challenge we have in the not-for-profit sector in schools, universities, colleges, is that our retention rate for first-time donors is 27%. Now, you don't have to sort of do the maths in, in, terms, of, uh, in terms of those numbers because it puts an incre incredible amount of pressure if we've got such a high donor churn. And the first, the first year isn't just, it's not just bad in the first year, and I'll turn it over to Kate to, to speak in the next slide, but we see this problem going on on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Yeah, so I mean, really, this slide speaks to the fact that um, if only 46% of all donors are going to renew, then um, it's really, it's really, really important that we think ahead of time about what programs, what initiatives we're going to um, start in the first place. I'm very conscious that during um, the past several months, um, there's been lots of new initiatives um, that perhaps uh, universities, colleges and so forth have 
entered into that we would normally and really successfully so particular student support appeals hardship funds and so forth universities typically are not engaged in emergency funding um, that's not normally our space and it's been wonderful to see the support from the community i think a big question comes is how do we then retain those donors um, so the flurry of going into fundraising activity and raising all this this money is great but there'll be many of those people who perhaps don't have the same drivers next year or not able next year to support in the way that we have this year. And I don't know how many of us have thought carefully enough in the advance as to, and what are we now going to do to keep those donors rather than all the effort that has gone into, into raising them. Giving days can be very similar where there's a huge amount of effort to bring a lot of people in on a particular day, but then the effort to renew and retain those donors is quite considerable. And in small shops, that becomes a really significant thing. So in thinking ahead about um, what programs are going to put up, think about some of these uh, donor retention and donor stewardship elements before you begin your programs, because the need for you to really keep on top of your donor relationships is going to be critical to your success. And it's so important in a small shop that you um, deploy resources really wisely and looking after the donors you've got is going to be really important. When we look at the um, uh, this slide here, you can see that it's it's um, that reducing donor and donor losses is the least expensive strategy for increasing net fundraising gains. And really what that means is simply that that keeping the donors you've got is far cheaper than finding new donors. Um, so um, the the effort and cost and uh, of time, collateral, uh, um, strategic thinking that goes into finding new donors, you would be better spending your time keeping the ones that you already have. That's the most effective thing that you can do. And that really plays the whole of this presentation that looking after current donors um, is critically important. It actually goes uh, goes quite a, quite a bit further on that, because if you look at this research from Adrian Sargent and Jennifer Lee, Jen Lee, it actually costs 10 times to bring in a new donor than, uh, than keep an existing one, 10 times. So if we're actually short of resources, we actually have to find a way to do that uh, effectively and manage our resources effectively. Uh, in the same research, uh, you identify it takes 18 months for a new donor to cover the cost of their acquisition. So what that, what that means for us is if we actually don't have a plan or if we don't have a strategy to keep them engaged and to get a gift in their second year, it's actually better not to get them at all because it actually costs us more money and it costs your organization more money. So if we don't have a plan or if we don't have a strategy or if we are actually not making an effort to, to keep them for the second gift, we're better off not getting them in the first place. I mean, that's really quite confronting when you think about it. You know, we spend a lot of time going out there focused on donor acquisition we really need to be thinking about not just donor acquisition, but as Kate has just spoken about, is donor retention and donor renewal. What are we doing to actually keep those, those donors over the long term? Makes such a, such a big difference. So the key to all of this and right at the, the center of any of your um, donor stewardship, donor retention, unsurprisingly, is your donor. And so the most important thing that you can do is to keep the donor at the heart of your thinking. We have in our office, um, a, um, and since I haven't been into the office in several months, I can't remember where the quote come from. Somebody on, on my team who's on this call might might be able to remind me. But we have an, a, a notice up on our board in the office that um, that says um, they are not our donor. We are their charity. And it really flips the thinking. It might have been um, uh, Lynn Wester who, who said that. I'm not sure. But um, the point about that is, is that 
it's very easy when you're thinking in, a, in an office and we're, we're doing our jobs and so forth to actually forget the person who's at the center of all of this. And so if you flip your thinking that actually this is the choice that they've made, that they're not ours, we're privileged to be their charity. And you flip your thinking around that and what it is you need to do to keep thinking, keep putting yourself your organization at the center of their thinking is really important. So putting yourself into their shoes is really important. Um, I think authenticity is a, is, a, is a critical part of thinking about your donor stewardship. So when you're thinking about how you're going to go about this, um, of course, you need to be proportionate to the size of the gift, the timing of the gift. Um, you, you, you can't, it, it's, it's difficult um, to be effective in your donor stewardship if everything is done on exactly the same same level. So if you've got a, a donor who's given you $50 and a donor who's given you $50,000, you do need to consider um, the differences that you're going to make that's that's proportionate to the to the to the size. Um, timing is critically important. People want to be thanked um, promptly and appropriately when they when they make their, their gift. Um, you do need to consider the consistency um, so that um, even if you've got people giving across different faculties, different colleges, um, that actually there is some consistency of approach um, uh, between the donors, between um, the, 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 the classes. So if you've got a class giving program that's going from the 1950s to the 1970s, that how you manage those donors, they're in different classes, different fundraising initiatives, but there needs to be some consistency of approach so that um, donor X and donor Y kind of feel that they've actually um, been, treated, uh, been treated the same. Or if you've got partners, spouses, and so forth, that actually they've got some commonality of experience that's, that's proportionate. I think uh, to Nick's point earlier, what's really important is that um, that people need to feel a sense of importance and um, value about the gift they've had. And so no matter what size of the gift that someone has given, um, that they actually have made a difference. Now, clearly with larger donors, you're going to be speaking um, and able to speak perhaps in more depth around the impact. But, but above all, across all of donor stewardship, it's impact, not income, that we need to be talking about. That's the motivating factor. Talking to dollars, is, it doesn't really matter. It's about what does the dollars do? What has that achieved? Um, what difference has somebody made? And um, if you can tell a good story and you can motivate people around um, the way in which they, they, their giving has made a difference, you are far more likely to encourage people to consider making larger gifts in the future and that comes to that stewardship cycle where people make a gift but actually they're going around towards either making a, a, a renewed gift or thinking about making a larger gift and to the last block here I think in any of your donor stewardship what's really important is it's that you are facilitating a connection to the institution many of us and the nature of the personalities that we are and the, the love that we have for this job mean that we make a good connection with a donor but you are failing if you are not connecting them to your organization, to your college, to your school. Okay, so um, your job will come and you'll move on to, to somewhere else, or you might stay there a long time, be very happy in your role. But if you are not connecting that donor to the organization, then we're, we're failing in our duty. So it's not enough for them to have a good relationship with you. You need to spread those relationships around the organization and you need to continue to allow that donor to be excited about the future of that organization of your institution and the way in which they can play a part in it. Right, thanks, Kate. Now, it's interesting. I looked at this research from Penelope Burke about looking at donor expectations. And I think this is uh, really quite profound when you think about it, because we think a lot of what we do in terms of our reporting, uh, going back really, Mandy, to the point you raised earlier about the quarterly reports and things like that, 
uh, help to create a structure in terms of how we're giving. But one of the things that we can see is that our donors really expect to be touched really quite personally and quite engaged quite personally. So if you look at this, these stats here, 95% of donors would appreciate a call within one or two days, not, not a week, but within one or two days. Um, 85% have said, you know, a call from a board member within days of a gift would influence them to give again. Uh, now, how many, how many of us actually uh, have our staff, our, uh, our heads of college, our heads of school, our department heads uh, involved in contacting our donors and expressing our appreciation? We may do it out of the development office or out of the advancement office. Um, and some of our, our institutions have, have uh, our students call and have telephone, telephone call programs. But it's really quite interesting to be able to involve board members or to involve your council members in, involved in thanking people for their support. Donors who were called gave 20, 39% more. So there is um, significant ROI impact on this. And if you look at it over the longer term, after 14 months, called donors were giving 42% more. So if we actually just put, if we just did one thing and instituted this calling program to thank donors, reaching out to them in a personal way, uh, we can actually start to see a measurable impact in terms of how much money we're raising and what it means in terms of our donor retention. And that really, I think, is, is something to think about in terms of how we're actually engaging people and how we, in fact, broaden participation within our institution. And by doing that, I would say the other advantage to it is that it'll actually help nurture the internal philanthropic culture within your institutions. And I think that that actually, uh, from, from our standpoint as, as fundraising officers or fundraising managers, can be quite a profound impact because if we've got other people on our side helping us to sell that message, uh, it'll mean that we'll be able to save some of our time going forward. We didn't put this question out to everyone, but I wanted to put it out there. And, and this is really about looking at that previous issue about, you know, people are expecting a call within one or two days and expecting that personal touch. I wanted to put to ask everyone, what do your first time donors expect? Um, so what do your first time donors expect? And then what strategy in place do you have to communicate this to them and facilitate the next gift? So how do you actually manage their expectations? And the reason this question is important is that because if you don't have a strategy in place to communicate what someone's expectations will be for a first time donor, then how will your first time donors know? You know, so how will they know that maybe they'll be called in, in a month or in a week or they'll just receive a thank you letter? Uh, how will they know what to get and what to expect if we haven't actually reached out and communicated to them? So. I'll turn it over to you and, and uh, maybe if you could share to me what do your first time donors expect and then importantly, how do you actually communicate to them uh, to nurture that expectation of what they should get? Any volunteers? I'll, I'll jump in again. Um... All right, thanks Ralph. Um, so this is my first year at Ormond and previously I've come from a more traditional charity where, you know, I feel that my experience at my, the charity sector is that donor stewart is a bit more established where my, this could be completely wrong, but I felt at um, educational institutions, it's perhaps not seen as perhaps as a big priority to do or particularly at Ormond. So 
we did a we made it uh, a job this year to contact everyone who donated to the annual giving appeal um, it's not a huge group so it was kind of doable um, and a lot of the uh, when I spoke to the first-time donors we prioritized those a lot of donors uh, had uh, were very surprised to hear from us because um, they didn't hear from the university they didn't hear from the college aside from the fact when they wanted money so it was lots of sort of jokey conversations around that but I think there was a sort of a deadly serious message there um, so normally we would uh, uh, we have a uh, alumni magazine and normally uh, that would go out uh, at the start of the year where there is a sort of philanthropy section but the, that has now changed so it, there used to be two there's only one and this, the only one we're doing falls out of the annual giving cycle um, so what we've decided to do this year is do um, some e-communications uh, just with some stories from the um, scholarships and how they've benefited students and also for the um, emergency support fund that was set up um, and send that out to uh, everyone who donated. And then next year, we're going to look at doing a printed impact report for, for those uh, same students, uh, for the same donors, sorry. Um, and we've also, you know, we've, when we did all those thank you calls, we made a point of saying you will hear from us throughout the year. And the overwhelming response from donors was, was yeah, we'd really like that to know what our, our donation has done. So it was a really nice conversation. That's terrific. Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. I think that that providing that first touch, I think particularly when you're starting a new program, uh, makes such a huge difference. And I think, again, as I said, it'll start to, to change the journey for, for how someone moves along. So. Nick, a couple of comments there just coming through. Um, what level of donation would require a, or would you recommend that people make those calls and would it be by the development office or by the board member? Well, I think it comes down to, to how much resources you have and, uh, and again, probably how many donations you receive. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I look at our program when I was running uh, the one at University of Sydney, uh, we did telephone calls for, uh, for annual fund gifts uh, for anyone who contributed $100 or more, but we had students do those calls. Uh, we developed a gift matrix, and so you may, you may develop a, uh, a stewardship matrix uh, for different levels of, of telephone calls, and that'll vary from institution to institution, I think. So for some institutions, uh, you may have development officers or fundraising officers uh, make a telephone call for anyone who's contributed uh, $1,000 or more, but you may have your head of school uh, call people, uh, call everyone who's donated 10000 or 5000 or more, and you may have a board member calling for, uh, for that much as well. So it, it, it's not really a one-size-fits-all is, is, is the, the easy answer, uh, because I think you have to look at your own donor numbers and you have to look at your own resources. Uh, my, my general rule of thumb is that if you want to get your board members engaged in the process uh, and to get your head of school engaged in the process, you probably need to start at a higher uh, donation amount and then work down. And then as the participation increases, you can start to look at a lower number uh, rather than starting them with, at a $100 telephone call or a $500 telephone call. Start it at a higher number. Um, it shows at least an understanding that you value their time. Uh, it allows you to manage their commitment because you will have fewer gifts at that higher level, um, which then allows you to at least start to engage and, and keep your donors close. Um, and I think that that's, that, that would be my advice. I don't know, Kate, if you've got 
Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think I think the important point you make there is having um, having a matrix is really good because particularly, well, for everybody, frankly, but when you're, you're resource light, actually having a bit of a plan um, helps um, ease the burden. Um, and I think being mindful that for every organisation, um, what represents a significant gift is different. Um, now, there are two ways of thinking about this. Is a significant gift determined by what you value as a significant gift or is a significant gift what is valued by the donor? So the donor that was making $100 and then changes to $1,000, in my mind, whatever your matrix says, if someone makes a big significant change in their giving, you would do a different kind of a stewardship in response to that because they've suddenly done something very different. But, but broadly speaking, if you set out a plan that's got those, those rough kind of parameters around what you're going to do for what level and by whom, that will help you enormously. And, and you have to do that in a way that's right for your organization, the resources you've got. The other thing that I would say is where you can kind of leave your plan a bit is where you have unexpected circumstances. And the last few months have really shown us that, um, you know, this, the world has been very topsy-turvy this year, um, to say the least. And what I've really enjoyed hearing about as I've connected with peers and um, colleagues around the world is how much more time has been spent on stewardship, partly because other programs have not been possible to pursue, or simply because actually it seemed the obvious and right thing to do is to reach out to your community. And the value that has come from those connections, for many people, um, sometimes you might be the only person, particularly for our older, older populations, you might be the only person they're hearing from. So I think picking up on Ralph's uh, point earlier that um, sometimes you can have that slightly uncomfortable conversation, which is, goodness, I never hear from you because um, you, um, you ask for money you have the capacity to change that that dial you have the capacity to say well that's not how we're going to do things we're now going to make sure that we're communicating um find out how they're going to not be making an ask um just to simply check in with them to share with them the good news we do things like um with our scholarship donors ringing up and letting them know that the um the person's either graduated or can they come to the graduation ceremony or to let them know how they're going and those small touches mean such a great deal to someone they feel very invested in the in the person in the support that they're giving and so to have somebody from from the office just let them know how things are going um, without any expectation of further support but just to let them know is, is really important if you can formalize that into some kind of um, uh, matrix I think that will help you manage the process much better it does prevent uh, things from from falling between the cracks which I think is uh, important so so um, uh, Penelope Burke, if anybody um, doesn't know um, Penelope Burke and her, her books, I do strongly recommend that if you're interested in this area and want to do better, um, her donor-centered fundraising publications are really wonderful, a really good read. Um, but it's really quite simple. I don't think that this is, this is rocket science um, because if you think of yourself as a donor, and I'm sure you all are, if not to your own organizations and to other charities that you care about, that what donors want is um, a prompt response to their gift. They want it to be personal so that it, it's clear that you understand who they are um, and, and they want to know that their gift is making a difference. So the three powers, think of your stewardship in terms of being prompt, being personal, um, being powerful. I think it's such an important point. It's funny, I uh, just finished working with a school or at least I'm still working with them, but we just finished doing a uh, feasibility study uh, with them. and. Uh, I interviewed a former board member uh, as part of the feasibility study, uh, and she was quite irked that um, the school doesn't seem to know who she is, um, that she was on the board for a number of years. She contributes to, to them, uh, but the acknowledgement she gets doesn't actually recognize that she has this relationship uh, with them as a former board member. 
So it is, it is important to bear that in mind, you know, and, and having that personal connection, uh, I think is a very important element. So. Well, it does, um, that does say something for, there are, there are some strong advantages uh, when you have uh, staff who um, have stayed in their roles for a decent amount of time, because actually you get to, to, know, to know those relationships. And so again, sometimes in those smaller organizations where, where actually the reach of your organization, you, you can be more familiar than the, where you've got tens of thousands of um, people, that, that, can be, that can be really helpful. But actually data is a really, is, is a tool that we must use. Um, and so um, even speaking to, to that example, Nick, um, making sure that you're using your um, CRM effectively is um, going to make your job of stewardship so much easier. Um, but, but more than that, actually using it to segment your donors and to devise your stewardship programs according to um, size and type of gift and to um, the area of support, use your um, tool, um, the, the data that you've collected to help develop those more tailored stewardship plans will, will be more effective. And so it speaks then to the donor, their experience, and the sense that you actually do have some understanding of who they are and what they care about. So do what you can to maximize the opportunity that your CRM system, and even if you don't have one that's particularly complex, um, start to think in terms of groupings of people and how that's going to determine the type of stewardship plan that um, somebody, um, uh, the, the, the way in which you can manage the relationships you have in groups of people. And so this is the moment where we can just throw it open because um, and particularly for those places where you're resourced, I do appreciate that it's, it's not like you've got like some of those bigger universities that have got whole, whole stacks of people who do nothing but look at the data and come up with loads of uh, plans and um, uh, prospects and um, priorities for you. Let's have a conversation now around in what way are you segmenting your donor groups? What kinds of um, uh, groupings are you putting together to be able to manage your stewardship? I'd love to hear from um, some people on the call and let's, let's see if we can have a couple of people who haven't spoken yet share with us how are you breaking down your donor groups so that you can be really um, tailored in your approach. Susan, any thoughts from, from you at Women's College? Or? Yeah, um, just, just backtrack just a little bit really quickly. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, yes. Um, I created, once again, I've only been in this role um, quite 18 months. So last year, um, I was inspired by a seminar that I went to with um, Lynn Wester. So I developed for our stewardship, um, I think I call it the nine stages of stewardship, which I've now set up. It's taken a while in our new CRM. So it means that I can actually click on to any donor and I can see uh, at what stage they're in their um, donorship cycle. So whether it's being as soon as I receive their gift, I send an email. Um, if the head of college thank you card has gone to them, um, have they been added then to our website? Um, we have then a certain value. Um, it's, a it's our thousand dollar plus donors that go into a very special um, donor book. So I can actually check that, you know, what stage they're at. Um, the, the other thing that I'm doing too, if for our um, higher gifts, um, I'm actually trying to give back some value to them. So for instance, this year, one of our largest donors, I invited her to be on a, um, what's called a multi-generational family panel. 
Um, unfortunately, it had to be postponed because of um, COVID. But it's just identifying those um, donors who have provided higher valued gifts of what we can actually give them other than, you know, the normal thank you, you know, including them in the impact report, um, you know, um, acknowledge them on our website. So they, I've still got a lot more work to do in that space, but it, it's coming together nicely. That sounds wonderful, um, Susan. So I'm, I'm, for the benefit of others on the call, when you put in your nine stages of um, stewardship, was that a difficult process for you to do? I'm just trying to encourage others that, that to not be overwhelmed by the idea, but it, it can be done, right? It can be done. Okay, so just to tell you, I started off, um, so from our account, this is how I started off from day one. So I received a spreadsheet from our accounts department of all the donors. It has all their details, like their receipt number, um, um, the, day, uh, the, day, the date of the gift, um, where they've allocated it to. So it was basically a report. So then I set up in the spreadsheet, created like the nine columns. So first one was um, an email thank you from me. Basically that important stage of Nick was talking about within one to two days. Um, if it was a significant amount, I would actually pick up the phone as well. Then we have a system where... Um, uh, the receipt and a thank you card goes to our head of college. So that was stage two. And, she, and so each donor then gets a um, personalised thank you. Um, stage three, number three was, I think they get acknowledged on our website. Stage four, um, oh gosh, they get included in our impact report. And last year I introduced the impact report as the first time the college had ever had one. And I, it was overwhelming success. And I launched that at our Dibby Deary dinner, which is a special annual dinner for all our donors. So no matter how much um, our donors have donated within a year, whether it be, you know, $100 up to, you know, $25,000, they all get invited to that dinner and made feel special because um, I always have this philosophy that every dollar counts. Um, and also what I find, um, it's, when you look at the data, it's amazing that that person who's given $100 for the last 15 years, how much that adds up very quickly. Um, and, yeah, so that's basically it. Then I, this year we went to the next stage um, of actually including those levels of, uh, including the stages of donorship into our CRM. Um, so that was all customized. Yeah, it, it's a, it is quite a simple process. It, you just need, you need to have sort of, um, you, you've got to have the vision, I suppose, and then to make it happen. That's how I would explain it. Well, well done you for doing it because I think that's the most important thing is is that you're doing you're you're doing something and I think what I loved hearing about what you were talking about just then is is that you're also recognizing loyalty so longevity of giving Correct. as well as value of gift I think there is something very powerful about that longevity yes. as well yes um Nick to you yeah I think that that's an important element and I think you know as you said it's you've got to begin the journey uh to do it yeah there's many ways you can sort of uh slice and dice your donors up into in a segments and here are a few things that you can look at. So we've talked really about size of gift and, and uh, the value of the, the gift that someone is making. 
but there are other aspects. You could actually uh, segment your donors in terms of your stewardship plan based on geography, in terms of where they live. Um, so it could be in Sydney as an example, or uh, if you're in Perth, in Perth versus regional, uh, a regional donor or an interstate donor, you can divide them differently. Uh, you can look at income levels. So if someone, someone is on an, uh, you see on a trajectory on an income uh, and you see them as a potential major donor, you can segment your donors that way to look at their potential and their capacity to make a larger gift. Um, so if someone actually happens to be a graduate of your institution uh, and they've gone into education, they may have a lower income level. And so you know that their, their giving history or their future giving is going to be a little less perhaps than someone who may be a CEO of a pharmaceutical company as an example. So you can start to look at those aspects. Uh, for, we've got some university uh, institutions participating in this call and you may decide to, to break up your donors or segment your donors by faculty, as I've mentioned, or in fact profession and look at, look at those aspects. Donor giving history, there's another example. You could look at someone who based on what their longevity of giving is, as Kate has said, and what their future giving is going to be, and whether in fact there's a potential for a bequest at the end of this. And so your giving and your stewardship of that program, of that particular donor, uh, may be stronger, or may be different for, for those donors, rather than looking at dollar amount, looking at their uh, relationship or the length of their relationship. Potential gift, again, if you do, if you do any prospect rating uh, at your institution, uh, if you use LAI, linkage ability and interest to, to evaluate your donors, you may, you may create a different stewardship program based on the potential gift that you may get some, from someone who has a higher A or ability. So if you see someone with a higher ability rating or a higher LAI rating, you might segment your donors differently that way. And then again, type of gift. Ralph mentioned that their program is, is really an annual, uh, annual giving program that starting their annual giving uh, stewardship program with. Uh, but there's other aspects. You may look at someone who's making a major gift. You may look at someone who's making a, uh, a bequest uh, or bequest commitment. So there might be a different type of stewardship that goes into that particular program. There's so many different ways you can do it and there's gonna be different ways to overlap it. And I guess, you know, as I said, part of it is trying to find a way that actually simplifies it for you and allows you to manage your time and allows you to connect to donors in a meaningful way, but actually helps you to drive strategy for your program and to drive strategy for the institution. So, Nick, you're, hey. you're, you're, you're right in uh, saying there's many different ways. One that I would just highlight in addition to the ones on here is looking at um, how someone is making their gift um, and therefore your stewardship being responsive to the way in which they're making gifts. So if they're giving online, then sending out paper receipts is not necessarily the, the, the kind of the right thing to do. If they've given through some kind of social media initiative, then there's a completely different way in which you can connect with that, um, with that donor. So I think looking at the way in which they've made their gift is um, an important consideration as well to, to because that, that can actually also be a, a resource issue. You don't need to over egg things. If someone's been very comfortable online and just needs a light touch, nice little email, something like that, or you know that, they, that they're happy getting EDMs, they don't need big hard copy things through the post, that, that's useful to just be mindful of how someone has given as well as um, all those other considerations that, that Nick suggested. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, Nick. No, no, listen, that's a very valid point. And I think that's something we ought to be thinking about is 
you know, if people are giving uh, through a response, a direct mail response, then it may be entirely appropriate to thank them through direct mail uh, or through a, a written response. But if people are giving online or through technology, then uh, they're very comfortable with that platform. Let's uh, let's utilize that approach. Well, and also some donors can be a little overwhelmed or surprised if actually they, they, they've given a, a, a you know nice gift, but it might be relatively modest and they might have done it online. If you then send them a pile of stuff through the post, their immediate thought is, hang on, all of my money has just been spent on the stuff that you've just sent me. So that you need to be proportionate as well because donors are sensitive to what is the cost of the stewardship that they're they're experiencing so um do think yeah. about that that just sending them lots of things through the post isn't necessarily what they want to see it's very true and i think you know if you sort of look at at how we engage it i mean the entire plan that susan's got in place the nine-step process is really about creating a systemized approach so that you've actually not losing donors and whatever program you put in place or whatever system you put in place should allow you to do that create a, a systematic way to do it and then again, as, as Kate alluded to earlier, in terms of relationship building and connecting to the institution, we want to create their understanding of our mission and, and connect them to our mission in terms of where we're going. Those are really the two key things that really underpin how we should approach it and how we do it in terms of uh, looking at mass stewardship programs. So. so again, we'd love to open this up and hear from you what are the questions that you're asking your donors when you're um, meeting with them or um, what would you really like to be asking them and you're wondering whether you actually whether it's okay to ask those questions um, let's open up and have a bit of a discussion tell me something about what, what what conversations you're having with your donors what kinds of questions are you asking um, I just wanted to just jump back one one point you made there in terms of how you how you submit your donors and it leads into your question you just asked. Um, I'm just going to give two examples of what we do here, and it's again about the efficiency and not having a lot of resource, so having to be really smart about how you how you communicate. We run two flagship programs at my college. One is around Indigenous education. We've got 100 Indigenous students, and we get a lot of support for that. The other one is innovation. We also run a youth innovation centre. Um, and, and I use that a lot to segment because that goes to the heart of our mission as an organization, but also it's the kind of thing that people really want to engage with. So in terms of the indigenous stuff, what I've done is I've overlaid that with our social media schedule because I also run the marketing so I can actually integrate those two things really carefully. And we do a lot of profiling of the students in the program and we can then thank the donors as part of the post or part of the story that we're telling about the students. Mm -hmm. So that can go out quite broadly and it's doing, it's, it's thanking the donor, it's profiling the student, it's talking about the mission we have around um, supporting Indigenous education. Um, and I, so I, I overlay my, my stewardship matrix with my social media matrix or my marketing matrix so that I can actually keep those two things really tightly focused. And in terms of innovation, we have a showcase twice a year of the, the startups that the young people are working on in our um, co-working lab and we invite a whole lot of people most of them are donors or just investors we don't ask them for money it's just come and see what these amazing young people are doing and working on and that's such and that's where I have my conversations about what do you want to support um, how would you like to grow help us grow this program what could we do more about so it's actually very in-person and those events are already set up so I don't have to create another opportunity on top of everything else I can just tie it all together and have one one conversation so I think everything you guys are saying is exactly what we what, what many of us are doing but it's just trying to be efficient about it and um, that for me is the biggest challenge is how do I how do I have one conversation and get multiple outcomes so that I don't have to have multiple conversations 
um, which sometimes is contrary to stewardship, where you really need to be having personal conversations all the time. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I, I think that's a really, really good point, as you say, particularly, particularly for smaller, uh, more likely resource organisations. But I think that point around normalising philanthropy and the visibility of philanthropy, either as an opportunity or as, a, as an impact um, uh, um, uh, point, so that it's not just the donors who are seeing that stuff is so important. You need everyone to see it, not only because you want to celebrate the success of that, but because of the influential factor it has on other people who see great work going on and think, hey, that, that sounds good, I'd like to get involved. So if you're only communicating the impact of your philanthropy to existing donors, you are already preaching to the converted and you need to spread that. So I think, Mandy, it speaks to both efficiency and effectiveness to, to make sure that you are doing that integrated approach because... A, that's the resource, good way of doing it, but B, you're spreading that message and normalizing it. Only, only telling donors about what's going on doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So um, I think that's great. Does anyone else have any other comments around the kinds of conversations or questions or approaches that you're taking? I think if, if in the interest of time, Nick, if you move on to the next slide, I mean, there's, there's sort of two levels to this. There's it's, it's actually okay to talk to your donors directly about what kind of stewardship is effective for them. Um, I think that it's, it's okay to ask for feedback um, around um, how they'd like to be um, communicated, um, whether it's working, um, you know, whether there's um, things that, that are more effective for them or not. And, and that, that's uh, particularly the, the, the higher end of your donor scale um, is really important in terms of some of that bespoke stewardship, but even, what you start to learn about your community and what they like and what works for them can help um, to develop your program. There's a different layer here though. So these, these um, questions really speak to the very particular issue around how they, they want to hear about their gift. But I think there's other questions that you can and should be um, probing a sort of, um, as Lynn Wester calls it, you know, the, the, the deeper dive. And really you need to learn um, ever more acutely attuned uh, listening skills in all of your dialogues and conversations with your donors. So, um, you know, if you had to describe your donor in, in, in sort of three words, would you know how to do that? Um, Lynn Wester says, you know, um, what, what's their passion? What's their hobby? What's really driving them? Because if you don't understand your donor, your ability to look after them or indeed to talk to them about the ways in which they may continue to be involved in a, in a deeper way within your organization is going to be weakened as a result. So we can get a bit too transactional about our stewardship. You mustn't ever lose sight of really trying to understand the donor, what's important to them and what motivates them. And I'll give just one very small anecdote about this, which is when I was at the University of Nottingham, we had a very wealthy donor who was giving relatively modest gifts to um, the Faculty of Law because he was a law graduate. He had um, family wealth, but he'd also made his own money in a very successful business. And he supported, I think it was a memorial gift to a, um, a, a, a professor who was very uh, important within the faculty years gone by. He made a modest gift, £1,000, £1,500, and the university just kept talking to him about law. It turns out uh, this guy was passionate about giving disadvantaged kids the opportunity to have any kind of education, both at um, uh, uh, secondary and tertiary level. And so keep talking to him about law. We were completely missing the point. When we had that conversation with him and really started listening, really understanding what it was he wanted to do, he made a six-figure gift to our widening participation program, not a four-figure gift to a memorial gift. That was just his kind of pocket money spare change. I'd just do something to tick the box that did law. 
But for years, we weren't listening to him. We just kept talking to him about law. So because someone did a certain degree or they were in a certain college or they were at a certain university, um, you, you must never miss the opportunity to really ask donors questions and find out what really makes them tick. Those conversations are, are really, really important. I think the idea about engaging uh, with your donors is very, very powerful, uh, which brings us, leads us nicely into the importance of your role in, in stewardship. Um, just looking at some research that came out here. So this is a research by Adrian Sargent uh, looking at it. In terms of creating donor loyalty, one of the things that really stands out uh, according to his research is that the quality of service that comes from your fundraising team and the quality of your interactions increases donor loyalty. Um, so based on the responses from donors, how we engage with them from a fundraising standpoint, how we ask for their support, how we look after their support helps boost, uh, helps boost their um, loyalty. What we've seen with that is that if it boosts their loyalty, they create satisfied donors. And according to his research, very satisfied donors are twice as more likely to give than satisfied donors. So if we can actually understand our role in, in that donor chain and keeping them engaged, we can actually see that we're much more likely to generate increased support uh, and, and actually have them participate. But it actually gets even better than that. And what we can see is that satisfied donors don't just give you more or are likely to give you more, but they actually give you for a longer period of time. So their commitment to stay with you as an organization or as a school or a college or a university is enhanced the more satisfied their donors. So if we actually play our, our role in a fundraising office or an advancement office, keep our donors engaged, keep our donors satisfied, report back, provide that accountability. Not only do we increase how much they will give and how much likelihood they'll give, but we increase their relationship with us over a longer period of time, which of course then leads into a potential bequest or a gift and will uh, down the road if we continue to look after that relationship. So it's really quite profound. It's not a one-off one transactional engagement. It's about how we actually continue that relationship over a period of time, which turns us, which brings us over to this final question that uh, that we had, and I'll have Kate lead this uh, uh, this discussion here as well. So, uh, so we just want to know what's your. We'll do this a quick fire round because we get we're running short of time. But what what is your top t top tip uh, to others in this group as uh, the most effective um, stewardship practice that, that you know of in your institution? Um, I, I I'll I'll perhaps while you're thinking, I'll start. I think the top tip is be a donor to your institution. Know what it's like to experience um, being a donor in your own organization because you learn pretty fast whether that works um, and, and how that feels to be, to be a donor in your own organization. What about yeah, somebody else? Sure, I might share one, one point here. I think one of the things that you should do uh, if you haven't already done it is actually conduct a stewardship audit of your, of your institution. Yeah. You can, you can use an outside firm like ours, but you don't have to. You can do it yourself. And that can be as simple as actually going out there and talking to a range of donors, um, directly talking to a range of donors, from your small donors to your mid-sized donors to your big donors, to get a sense of how satisfied they are and how they would like to be engaged uh, with your institution. And importantly, to be able to compare what your stewardship program looks like compared to other stewardship programs to the organizations to which they give. 
uh, and that may be universities that, that you're affiliated with. It may be schools that, um, that they came from. But it's interesting to see that perspective because I think it gives you a sense of how you can be better and what little things they expect and how to take the program forward. Any other top tips? Come on, there must be a couple. You must be doing some great things. Everyone's too shy. <laughs> they don't say. They're wanting to learn from the masters, Kate. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I think that um, stewardship in its simplest form is just good manners. Treat people how you'd like to be treated. Mm. And I think, you know, I think the key thing, you know, Kate, is that if, if you had one thing to, if you had two things that you had to think about, is about how to actually uh, put in place a stewardship program that looks after your entire cohort of supporters uh, in a way that, as I said earlier, is about system, systemized uh, engagement that actually maximizes your time. So, you know, we, we're running, in, in many cases, small shops. And if you don't actually have a system in place to be able to do it, it'll actually create inefficiencies of your own time management in terms of how to do it. So creating a, a systematic program, I think, is very, very helpful. And then understanding at what point in time you need to engage with people uh, on a personal level and, and how to how to move that program forward. Um, my one I'm advice, uh, sorry, sorry Kate, I was just going to say, my one advice, as I said, you know, going back to the point that Mandy was raising earlier, is is use the, the members within your own institution, right? So, you know, use your heads of school, use your department heads, use uh, the staff who are benefiting from the program and build up internal champions to actually help you put in place a stewardship program because everyone likes to be thanked. Um, and, you know, you can put your, your staff into that particular um, situation and it's not going to be a difficult thing because thanking someone is very, very easy. Um, we're not asking them for money. All we're doing is actually showing our appreciation. And so you know that the call that someone's going to get uh, will be well received and, and will put, make your, uh, your caller your staff member feel good about it. Sorry, kid. The, I, just to finish off, my last tip would be um, uh, that, it, it, that it is better to do fewer things well and reliably than to do lots of things badly. Um, so when you're thinking about the resource you have, um, think carefully, choose wisely, and do that well. Um, and that will go further than getting a lot of things wrong and in a sort of chaotic state or you can't support them going forward. So setting up lots of things that then you can't, can't continue is, is, is problematic. So um, uh, quality rather than quantity is really important. And at this point, I'll close our presentation and um, hand over to Mandy. Um, thank you so much. Um, firstly, to Nick and Kate, gosh, that was amazing. It was wonderful hearing from you. Um, this is always so much to learn and every conversation like this just helps us all to do a better job. Um, and so thank you very, very much for your time and expertise. We really appreciated it. Um, to all the delegates and participants today, thank you so much for joining us. We had a really great response to this topic. Um, and it just goes to show that the, the basics of what we do every day still remain so important in terms of learning. So thank you very much for joining us. 
Um, the context of this residential college grouping that we're trying to create was an initiative we started at the beginning of the year. Um, we have lots of stakeholder groups at Educate Plus. We have schools, we have universities, and within all of those groups, we have smaller subgroups, and the residential college group is one of those. So as Nick said earlier, we don't really fall in the, completely in the tertiary basket. We're certainly not in the schools basket, and we're kind of our own, our own little network of people um, generally very under resourced so what we were trying what we're going to be doing from educate plus's perspective is creating a benchmarking study amongst residential colleges around fundraising as a starting point of creating some kind of data that we can longitudinally measure and some kind of resource that the colleges could really use in terms of elevating possibly their resources but their their own structures within their um, offices and seeing how we can use that information collaboratively and collectively um, in doing all of that we started off by having just a general conversation around benchmarking and what that could look like and out of that conversation came the need for a whole lot of more conversations and a lot more networking so this was part two of that program um, part three is coming up on the 22nd of October and that one is going to be focused on communications and um, not just fundraising communications but I think communications more broadly because again most of the staff working at residential colleges are wearing multiple hats and doing multiple jobs so if we can again streamline and work efficiently that works for everybody so I just wanted to invite you to keep joining in keep um, communicating with us we've we're forming this network for residential colleges quite nicely and lots of people are linking into that um, I'm probably your central um, repository of information for that so I'll be reaching out to all of you after this webinar just to keep you abreast of what we're doing um, and we'll be setting up a working group probably in the new year to really look at what that benchmarking content should look like and how we can all participate so um, once again thank you so much and thanks to Neil for hosting us um, it's been amazing um, and we look forward to seeing you again thanks Mandy and thanks Nick Kate uh, terrific and um, just one other final it's I'm just so pleased to see this network of uh, residential colleges being developed and we'd love to see you all in Adelaide at our international conference next year um, I know budgets are tight but this network is so beneficial and um, I'm sure Mandy and the board will be looking at ways to try and encourage and support you uh, to be able to be there. So thanks once again to Nick. You've been a great partner of Educate Plus. To Kate, we wish you well. Thank you for your contribution. There's been some absolute gems that you've, I've been writing notes as you've been speaking. It uh, doesn't surprise me, Nick. Thanks for your work. Thanks for sharing your expertise. And Kate, terrific. Wish you all well. Have a great day, everyone. Thank, right, you. thank you very much. Bye. Okay, right, bye. Thank you.